ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Raise Your Voice, the podcast where we talk about everything from social justice, hip hop, politics, uh, diversity, inclusion, you name it, we're not afraid to tackle it. And so today I have with me my homegirl from Brooklyn, New York, my friend, Pastor Daniel Pilgrim. Daniel, what's up? Hey, man. Thanks for having me on the podcast, man. It's good to be in your space. Hey, I'm glad you. I'm glad that you are in the space. You know, <laughs> you, uh, you agreed to jump on this with me, and um, I'm sure the listeners are going to look forward to what you have to say. As uh, you know, we've been dedicating. I've been dedicating a few episodes to just women and just allowing them to raise their voices about certain issues and topics that generally they don't get to talk about. And I'm glad that you are you're willing to raise your voice. So, Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, a little bit about me, okay. As you said, I'm from New York. Not really Brooklyn, though. Queens, but, you know, still fast. Brooklyn, Queens. Um, <laughs> you know, we still connected. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, uh, New York City girl, by the way, of Trinidad and Tobago. Um, currently, I'm a pastor. I serve as the associate pastor here at the Berean Church in Atlanta, Georgia. I also consider myself a community leader here in Atlanta. Um, and I'm, I'm just a change agent. That's what I, that's what I am. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. And so that's, uh, that's really, really amazing. And the work that you do. So tell me, uh, how did you, uh, how did you get into social justice? Like, was this something that you always believed in or something triggered it? Like what pushed you to, um, to go into that field? Uh, that's a great question. I think, uh, partially due to my background and, and my immigration status, which we'll talk about a little later, and um, just realizing that uh, sometimes change doesn't happen unless like people really raise their voices and speak on the behalf of others. And, um, you know, I've just always had a heart and a passion to help raise the quality of people's lives, whether you're um, in a, an urban community or whether you're in a well-to-do-off community, wherever it is, I just felt like it's my, my duty um, to help others by raising my voice and doing my part uh, to help raise the quality of other people's lives. That's awesome. Because you said your, your background and you were, you were born in Trinidad? Born and raised. Okay, so how, um, when, when did you come to America? I came to America at the age of 13, going on 14 uh, in two, August 2000. Okay. So it's been, yeah. Been okay, wild. so you still have a lot of heavy roots in Trinidad. You know, you're not like... Um, one of those immigrants that came over when they were like three years old. No, no, no. <laughs> I know Trinidad, yeah. So what's cool about that is that, and you're seven-day Adventist, right? Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is that um, it's very hard to find Adventists mm -hmm. to really be actively involved in social justice, like with their, to marry their faith with social justice it's really like um, an anomaly. It's not something that's quite talked about in um, most Caribbean churches, at right. least the ones that I've experienced. So um, how, how did you navigate through that? You know, like when you started getting involved in social justice or, or perhaps maybe the church that you were in, was it actively preached or was it communicated? Like, hey, social justice, equality and freedom is a part of who we are and what we do. No, it wasn't preached at all, um, rarely spoken of. Um, and so this kind of, my social justice uh, activity kind of derived when I started seeing the gospel as social justice. So my theology kind of 
evolved over time, you know, going to seminary and reading and realizing that the gospel is social justice and just, you know, knowing my circumstance and other people's circumstances around me, you know, that's how my, my love, my drive, how it was um, developed. Um, but it was rarely uh, ever spoken of in church. I wasn't raised Adventist. So, you know, I come in with a little different background. And so I think that plays a part as well um, in my um, role in community service and social justice. Mm, that's nice. That's nice. When did you, how did you discover the gospel is social justice? Um, yeah, you know, I'm asking all these questions because similar to you, um, I, I didn't realize the gospel is social justice until like late in my, in my life or, mm -hmm. you know, when I got to seminary and I started hanging out with other people, like when did that happen for you? If you can identify it. Sure. I, I think it happened to me like while I was at seminary and coming out of seminary, like being able to see the Bible from a different lens and different perspective, especially from my New Testament classes, uh, those professors really helped me um, shape a good view of the gospel. And when you just look at the biblical examples of what Jesus did when he came on earth, Jesus was not only um, helping people in their spiritual walk, but he was literally changing their circumstances. He was literally raising them out of um, the harmful communities and environments that he was they were in and that what you know that intel is social justice he was restoring people restoring people back to their right standing women um and people who were sick and people who were pushed to the side because they have had ailments and you know jesus what he was doing was the epitome of social justice so you know i think it was during my andrews experience that I, my my theology and my perspective really got changed Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. Better yeah. for you than it was for me. I um, get imagine. <laughs> I none of that at Andrew. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm happy that uh, that you received that because it's so important. Now, yeah. Daniel, you've been pretty vocal about women's rights and equality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, from my understanding, I believe you 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 work for a conference that does not ordain women. That's um, correct. We yeah. So. So what, what, what's been your fight like? How do you, you think you're making progress? Do you think there's change coming? Um, I, I definitely hope that there's change coming. Um, I hope there's change coming, but my fight has been really to educate people. Um, that's what uh, my goal is right now, to educate people. I wrote an article a few months back just to educate people on really what it means when we do not ordain people. And I recently just took a stand not to receive commissioning because I feel like a part of my fight is to stand up and to really show that this is not okay. Um, and um, I, I really think that people uh, are in this traditional mode and it doesn't affect them, but I need to show them that it affects us. It affects women. Um, it's unjust um, and it needs to be changed. So I've been speaking out, I've been writing, I've been educating people um, and just hearing my other female colleagues and their stories, um, it just makes me want to speak out more. And one of the reasons why I started being really vocal about it is because I realized that in the struggle for equality, that there were more male colleagues, or more men speaking out for women than, than women for themselves. And I said to myself, if we are ever to win this, this war, this, um, win this fight, we have to speak up for ourselves. The oppressed has to speak up and rise to the forefront in order for people to take notice that what is happening within our system is not okay. Mm. Wow. So you you're rejecting the um, commission. And yeah. has that um, 
have you gotten pushback? Like, are there people telling you, oh, you need to just be a good old girl and take the commission and, you know, keep raising your voice and keep speaking out? Like, what has been the reception um, with the rejection of the com co commission license, which I'm commending you for, uh, let you know, I'm, I'm like, that's bold. I love it. But uh, what, what have other people said to you? Uh, great question. You know, I had some friends who just said, you know, you know, why, why, why would you not accept it? You know, it's a recognition of, of where you are, you know, you know, I don't think it's wise. And, you know, I just took their comment and I put it in my back pocket or I put it under my feet. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to that. Um, uh, my, my conference pre president was very uh, supportive of the decision. Um, but there were some people in the office who said, well, you know, what do you think this is going to accomplish? You know, um, so there, there are mixed feelings about my decision within um, colleagues and people in, in the conference office. However, um, regardless of my position or my decision um, makes a change now, I know that it is allowing people to see that it, it is unacceptable. Um, and so to me, I don't really care if people are, are not for my decision, that doesn't matter to me. What I do care is people understand that it's not okay. And that's, that's the goal of my decision. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's really bold. And I think that's a really good uh, pedestal that you're standing upon to let them know that it's, it's, it's not right to hold women to a higher standard, <clears throat> but you're willing to give them a lower title. You know, yeah. it's like us brothers in this uh, male dominated field, we can practically get away with murder. And, yeah, yeah. you know, we get slapped on the wrist, we get moved to another district, we get sent somewhere else. But it, God forbid, if one of you sisters get involved in some sort of scandal, oh man, it's gonna be crazy. And not even that, even if you don't meet your goals, you know, like we get tithe goals, right. baptism goals, right. they, they use that against you when you know there's brothers out there and they ain't baptizing or doing nothing. Uh, exactly. Coming in. So I appreciate the fact that you are so willing to put yourself in a place to take a public statement, um, a bold statement like that to say, no, I deserve equal rights, just like my, uh, my male counterparts. That's absolutely, that's commendable. That's really, really commendable. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Did you want to say something? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that, um, our, division and our church is in a really critical time right now and I know like a lot of us who support women in ministry in our in our division you know th they think that the the one of the best ways right now to to show support is to hire more women now that is that is a good way to show support but that does not eradicate the problem you know mm -hmm. in order to eradicate the problem eradicate the injustice you know, we have to stop perpetuating the injustice. And one of the ways to do that is, is not commissioning women. Because when you commission women, that's perpetuating the injustice that women are not as equal as men, you know? Yeah. Um, also, this notion that, you know, I, I've had some people say, well, you know, women need to prove themselves, you know? You know, there are not enough women pastors out there proving themselves that, you know, women are, you know, are good for the job. And I'm like, you don't ask that for your male, co male colleagues. As you just rightly said, there are many male colleagues who have not baptized one soul in their entire pastorate. Um, there are male colleagues who, who you know, who are not uh, doing a job of raising the quality of their churches. And we, they get paychecks after paycheck. They retire without a problem. 
but mm-hmm. women have to prove themselves. Those, those are false ideologies, false theologies, which need to be eradicated, which will not change unless people start speaking out about them. So this is why it's important, I feel, to raise my voice because people will accept what is happening as normal unless we start shaking up and agitating the table and saying, hey, this is not normal. This is not okay. Right. And what's crazy is that this is not just the narrative in the church. This is the narrative of society. Uh You have a bunch of men sitting maybe around a table and they're saying uh, women need to prove themselves (laughs) to Uh get equal pay. I mean, what more do you have to prove? You've gone through, you've been through all of the academic training. You've had experience in the trenches. You can uh, divide the word correctly, but we still feel like you need to prove yourself, which is, which is crazy to me that in mm-hmm. 2019, we are still having this conversation. Yeah, um, it's nuts to me. And the last thing I'll say about this is that, you know, lately I've been reading uh, Genesis. I've been going through uh, the creation story. And, you know, yesterday I was reading Genesis chapter five and it was saying, you know, in the beginning, God created um, man and woman in his image, in his likeness, created him male and female. And I was saying to myself, if as a church we preach that the image of God um, is male and female, then how are we inaccurately portraying the image of God in our churches by raising up the, 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 the men, but pushing down women? How is that? Mm-hmm you know, uh, exemplifying the image of God when women are on the lower strata of things and men are uh, lifted up. When the church is is 60% women, I I don't understand how we can say, well, the image of God is this, but we portray another thing. It, it, you know, it makes no sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. It makes no sense. But in a, in, in this aspect, it makes sense if you're trying to hold on and keep power. Yes. If that's, yes. If that's, if that's what it is. It makes sense if you're trying to keep your positions of power and you want to relegate women to be subjective to you all of the time. Because as you said, women's, and this is what's crazy, right? Women prim- financially support the mission. Mm. You know, it's, it's your tithe dollars. It's your offerings that support the mission. But yet your voices and your bodies are rejected by the church yeah and and i just find this cognitive dissonance and i don't understand and last but not definitely not least is you and i are both preachers and we know Mm -hmm. that when we preach and if we want to get a point across we can preach the bible all we want but as soon as we quote ellen g white oh Uh, come on come on (laughs) eureka it makes sense and so we take our instructions from a woman and we still have the audacity to reject our sisters in ministry by giving them a uh, i call it a gi joe made up certificate (laughs) called commission commission while we hand it to our brothers wow wow um so um you you mentioned earlier about the fact that you are an immigrant um Mm -hmm. i don't know if many people know this but you are a DACA recipient. You are a dreamer. Um, yeah. During that whole ordeal, and you know, it's kind of crazy how the media has moved us away from that, and there's still a fight. Yeah, yeah. Um, what you know, kind of walk the listeners through 
what that means to be a dreamer and even like your experience during that whole ordeal when the president was holding dreamers hostage because he wanted to build his wall. His wall, yeah. That, that, that's a, a great question. Um, so just for a synopsis sake, uh, being a DACA recipient means that um, I came to this country under the age of 16, which means I have really no autonomy of coming here on my own, you know. And so um, I met the requirements when um, President Obama was in, in power. Good afternoon, he everybody. Created DACA. As, uh, this morning, Secretary Napolitano announced new actions my administration will take to mend our nation's immigration policy, uh, to make it more fair, more efficient, and more just, specifically for certain young people, sometimes called dreamers. Now, these are young people who study in our schools, they play in our neighborhoods, they're friends with our kids, they pledge allegiance to our flag. They are Americans in their heart, in their minds, in every single way but one, on paper. They were brought to this country by their parents, uh, sometimes even as infants, and often have no idea that they're undocumented until they apply for a job or a driver's license or a college scholarship. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you've done everything right your entire life, studied hard, worked hard. So when um, number 45 uh, decided that he would rescind, rescind sorry, the executive order that Obama uh, created that which is DACA, it really created a fear and a panic throughout the whole DACA, DACA community, and those you know who are in re relation to DACA, um, it really it, it, it created a scare because you just realized in that one moment your entire life was going to change, like all that you had worked hard for, you could have lost it in that in that time in that moment. And mm -hmm. so it, it was it was a fearful moment. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, you know, my church really didn't know when, you know, the whole conversation was going on and it was on the news uh, day after day, week after week. My church had no clue what I was going through. Uh, my senior pastor knew uh, Freddie Russell at the time, and we would talk about it and we have conversation. But in my heart, I just, you know, I, I have faith, but it was just a fear and a just a drastic shift that happened at that day. Yeah, what's crazy too is that um, the narrative on the news was that they made it seem like only Mexicans yes. were DACA recipients. Yes, and that, that's the, 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 the fallacy that's out there. You know, it's so funny. I went on a march once uh, for, for DACA and uh, one of my church members saw me on the news and my church member sent me a text saying, hey, I saw you out there supporting our friends, our Mexican friends. And I was like, I'm not supporting Mexican friends. I'm supporting myself, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> myself and my community and you know there are other people like me who are in the same uh, predicament so you know that ideology is out there that it's only mexicans or you know hispanic the hispanic community that's affected by this yeah so when you think about your denomination during that whole ordeal um when you know 46 minus one kept <laughs> you know using it did you want the church did you feel like the church should have stood up and defended um, that absolutely, absolutely. 
absolutely. I think a large majority of our church um, are immigrants. You know, the church grows now. And the only reason why we're growing is because of immigration. You know That's what I mean? That's true. <laughs> and so to have a large uh, majority of your uh, denomination be immigrants and uh, a portion of that be illegal immigrants or DACA recipients, you have to speak up for your people. You know, we have a, 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 a lot, even the home church that I came from, many people were in my situation when I first arrived, you know, it was a large portion of our church, I would say 20%, you know, and yeah. that is a representation of like Northeastern Conference on a hold, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so as a as a church you know i feel like our leaders have to represent the people that it's it, it's serving and you know i had friends who got received emails from their universities immediately saying listen we are in this fight with you we are supporting you uh universities sending out tweets um emory university sent out an email and tweet saying we're supporting our students we're supporting our immigrant population and those affected how can my my denomination not do the same thing when a large majority of our congregation are are Hispanic uh, individuals who were affected and black people who were affected and even European descent uh, immigrants who were affected. Uh, I think that there is a disconnect somewhere that, you know, that, I don't know, it just disturbs me that we only speak up on certain circumstances and others, we let it just go, we let it die. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm just like you, I don't understand and, and I don't understand it from this perspective as well, is that we take immigrant money. We collect uh, yeah. it every week. We want baptisms. I remember in New York City, you remember all those crusades that they would yes. always have, and they would do immigration classes before yeah. the crusade and, you know, sponsorship. And we are like, we'll sponsor you um, if you get mm. baptized. And yes. You know, and, and, and it's so confusing to me that it feels like religion has become this like transactional um, relationship ah. where it's like, mm. I only want to know you based on what you can give me, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And then like when the tables are turned, we're not there to help them. It's like, oh, get them baptized. They're in the church. We collect their money. But hey, you know. Uh, Jesus is going to come one day and, mm -hmm. and everything will get fixed. Um, and that, that really saddens me um, that, yeah. you know, that, that the church stays mum when it comes to issues that directly affect humans, humanity. Yeah. Um, wow. So you said you, did you, you were living almost with like the fear of deportation? Yeah. Well, well not necessarily deportation, um, because I know like, you know, well, deportation, I, I had some time. So the, the mm -hmm. consensus was that you would be, you know, once your, your uh, card runs out, then, you know, you know, then they will start making, you know, moves. So mm -hmm. I know I had a little time. So I was like, okay, I'll be okay for this period of time. But after that, what is going to happen? After mm -hmm. that, I could lose my job. After that, I can lose my apartment. I can lose everything that I've worked for for the past five, um, five to six years. All of that can be taken away. Uh, people who've bought houses, many DACA recipients have, have um, started organizations and started businesses, and all of that could be lost in just that moment. And it was just that was a scary thought, you know. Yeah. So what? Yeah. What? So what's life like now? Because 
you know, we, we've moved away from the whole dreamer DACA conversation. It's like yeah. out of sight, out of mind, you know, yeah. uh, and is there, I don't even know what the resolve was. It's like, you have to go on the internet to find out. Do you even know like what the resolve is? Is it? Are so you- we're kind of in limbo. So, you know, the president did the, uh, Ascension, and then two court uh, judges, they blocked it, um, saying that there was not sufficient evidence for, you know, rescinding the executive order. So they were giving the, you know, the U.S. Department of uh, Justice, Homeland Security, time to appeal it, but I don't think it has been appealed yet. So it's just in this limbo stage. Um, So we're really like, literally have our paperwork only because these two judges are trying to continually block it from going through. And so, you know, um, in order to live a quality life, you can't, I can't really focus on it at this point. So I'm just living my life passionately and purposefully and living it to the best of my ability because um, at the end of the day, I know God has, God has my back. Um, But there is always that thought in the back of your mind, like, you know, is it going to come back today? You know, is, is the conversation going to start again today? Will I lose my, my, um, my papers, you know? So it's always in the back of my mind, but at the forefront of my mind is living life. Like I have no limits, no limitations. Great. Awesome. Great. Great. So, um, tell the listeners a little bit about the work that you're doing now. Um, the activism in your community, um, is it primarily just simply on women's rights or are you looking at, you know, just whatever is out there that's an injustice um i have a passion for building strong communities and um i realized that in order to bring strong build strong communities you need to build strong families and strong youth and so i uh, have been working really closely with the youth the underserved at-risk youth population in my community and so along with all my other pastoral duties, other two things that I find joy doing um, is I do a, a project, is a project I call the Championship Project. And that is to help the young juniors and seniors in high school here in my community, help them to prepare for life after high school. Because right now the trajectory of their life, uh, based on their environment, they're not gonna go to college or get, uh, go to trade school or do anything positive with their life. Uh, based on statistics. And so what I do is I mentor these kids and I prepare them for life after high school so that they can have a job, have a career after they have finished their high school career. And so that's something I do. And it's just, it's just an amazing experience being able to walk alongside these youth and to help them open their eyes, give them exposure. And then something else I also do is a youth leadership camp in the summer where I have about 60 to 80 youth. And for two weeks, I just pour into these youth and I get uh, celebrities. I also get uh, city council people to come in and we just pour into them and just expose them to God's love, to resources, um, and just to help them raise the quality of their lives. Wow. Wow. That's, that's truly, truly amazing. When you say community, um, are you talking about the community surrounding Atlanta Berean or is it like zip code or is it just so, whoever wants to come? Great question. So it's, uh, it's both. It's a community around the church, but really targeting the 30318 zip code in which the church resides in. And okay. yeah, that is my, I'm, I pastor the community, <laughs> the 30318 zip code. Yo, that's, that's my that's church. Awesome. Yeah. 
that's what being a pastor is. It's not just yeah. a church. It's it's a community. Um, so I guess so. This is this is also like an interesting dynamic, and I've never been to Berean, and so I don't know what it's like. But do you find that Atlanta Berean, which is a predominantly black church, is it situated in a poor community and an impoverished community, or is it in a middle class? upper middle class neighborhood like what's the what is it like around the church we are in an impoverished community a lower class very underserved community we have a lot of food deserts here we have a lot of uh, apartment buildings that are abandoned and uh, although there's gentrification around us this community right here um, it is on the lowest spectrum where the medium income is about thirty thousand dollars per household um so we have a, a, a middle class upper middle class congregation in a lower class community <laughs> yeah yeah which is which is you know it, it's amazing because which is the reality for most of our black churches particularly mm-hmm. our flagship prominent black churches mm-hmm. they're all in their the congregation's pocketbooks or you mm. know don't match the community's pocketbooks if that makes sense yeah yeah. and uh, i i truly applaud the work that you're doing and um you know and i know for a fact or i know well no not for a fact i'm assuming that you're a social justice pastor but doesn't really translate to having a social justice church Mm-hmm. And well, that's um, and and that's a reality for not just Adventists, but for even some um, African American pastors or pastors in Dallas that I work with. Do you think? Do you have strong support from your congregation for the work that you're doing outside, um, in the community, I- or is it one of those like, yeah, do your thing, but we do our own thing. We're not gonna bother you. We like what you're doing. Great question. Um, I do have a group of individuals who not to only support me um, with their mouths, but with their feet. So mm-hmm. I do have a group of those individuals, but then I have a larger majority that just support me with their mouth. They're saying, yes, you're doing a great work. And, and you know, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which, which is typically the case, which is great because you need those foot soldiers. And one thing I've discovered that the, not every church backed Martin Luther King in his mm-hmm. fight for justice. It was always a small group and not everybody was there doing the work. You know, they show up for the marches, but they weren't, right. weren't there to do the hard work. So that's great. Um, Daniel, is there anything you want to like verbalize to the listeners in regards to whether it be women's rights, uh, being a dreamer, equality, freedom? Like, what do you want to say to somebody who's listening and you know they're thinking about doing social justice Um, i just think about a quote i think it was from dr king and he says none of us are free until all of us are free and i I love that quote because you know sometimes we are so comfortable and complacent because in our little circle we're okay but even if in your circle you're okay you're you're still not okay because there are your brothers and sisters and other places that are hurting and we all have a responsibility to make sure that we are standing up for the for the right of our 
our brothers and sisters. We all have the responsibility to raise our voices, to uh, to march, to create programs, to put funds. Um, we all have a responsibility to do something to help someone else. And we have not exemplified the gospel until we do that, until mm -hmm. we raise our voices, until we do something so that somebody else's life is impacted for the better. And that's, that's my um, encouragement to others, my, uh, my plea is that all of us realize that we're in this fight together and um, we have to stand up for one another and silence is not an option. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Oh man, Daniel, Pastor Daniel, Pastor Pilgrim, <laughs> I thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your heart uh, with these listeners. And you know, my prayer is that as men, we will allow you sisters to lead us um, and that we would stand beside you. And even in some cases, even if we have to stand behind you, but to always know that we are with you and we're next to you and we believe in um, gender equality. And so I just appreciate you for leading the charge, for, for being an inspiration, not just to me, but to all the people that you lead um, in the church and outside of the church and to continue to keep it up. Um, if the listeners want to get in contact with you, what's the best way? How do you want them to, uh, to, to, to send you messages? Sure. The, one of the best ways is Instagram. It's danielle.pilgrim on Instagram. Or if you want to send me an email, uh, it's pilgrimdanielle at gmail.com. All right. Cool. So there you have it, folks. Please get in contact with Pastor Pilgrim. Uh, her name says it all. She's a pilgrim. She's going to lead you to the promised land. So um, we thank God for her. We appreciate her and reach out to her because she's doing awesome work in the Atlanta area and in the Adventist denomination. And so once again, resist, redeem, reclaim, renew, and raise your voice because somebody needs to hear you. Good morning. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. The DACA program was implemented in 2012 and essentially provided a legal status for recipients for a renewable two-year term, worker authorization, and other benefits, including participation in the Social Security program uh, to 800,000 mostly adult illegal aliens. The policy was implemented unilaterally to great controversy and legal concern after Congress rejected legislative proposals to extend similar benefits uh, to, on numerous occasions to this same group of illegal aliens. In other words, the executive branch, through DACA, deliberately sought to achieve what the legislative branch specifically refused to authorize on multiple occasions. Such an open-ended circumvention of immigration laws was an unconstitutional exercise of authority by the executive branch. The effect of this unilateral executive amnesty, among other things, contributed to a surge... That was over a year ago to end a program that protected over 820,000 immigrants, children who came here with no decision on their own, but because of their parents were looking for a better opportunity for them. 
an opportunity so that they can dream, so that they can become what they've always imagined to be, that they could have that here in the United States. But unfortunately, they became the pawns in a silly game as adults gathered in a room and were deciding whether or not we should build a wall to keep immigrants out of the country. These dreamers are your doctors, your teachers, your lawyers, your pastors. You name it, I'm sure you'll find a dreamer somewhere there. They're not illegal people as we determine them to be. They're not thugs, rapists, or drug dealers. They're just honest, hardworking people like you and I. And as it stands right now, their situation still remains in limbo. As Congress needs to figure it out, lawmakers need to figure it out, that we need to do something sooner than later. Because to deport them back to a country that they have no idea about, it's criminal in itself. What happened to give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free? That's what America stood for, a land of opportunity, a land where people can get refuge, not a place that we develop and create walls to block people out. Our true meaning comes by understanding each other and giving to others what they can't give to themselves. So I believe America, as Maya Angelou would state, these yet to be United States of America needs to figure it out before we continue this cycle and it gets worse than it is right now. One thing that we should all be reminded of the fact is that we're all immigrants. No matter who we are, no matter where we're from, we all came from. Now let's help other people get to the same destination. And there you have it. Thank you for tuning in to Raise Your Voice, a podcast where we just discuss any and everything and give people an opportunity to speak about the things that matter. Remember, you can support this podcast by subscribing to it, by putting a link up on your Instagram, your Facebook, whatever social media platform that you use. And let's not stop raising our voice.